Standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises I cannot fall, listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. Standing on the promises of God. All right. Turn to your neighbor and say, you sang so well, you need to be in choir Wednesday night. Okay? I knew that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> then you can be seated. We're going to keep singing here. <laughs> Number 392, we're marching to Zion. Number 392. Come we that love the Lord and let our joys be known. Join in a song with sweet accord. Join in a song with sweet accord. And thus surround the throne. And thus surround the throne. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion, we're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly King, but children of the heavenly King, may speak their joys abroad, may speak their joys abroad. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city. Now then the last stanza. Then let our songs abound and every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's grave. We're marching through Emmanuel's grave. To fairer worlds on high, to fairer worlds. Marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. We're marching upward to Zion, the beautiful city of God. All right, you're singing good tonight. Number 245 at Calvary, 245. This will be an offertory hymn. And let's stand together as we sing the first and last stanzas. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. 
knowing not it was for me he died on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdens, hope, and liberty at Calvary. Now the last, oh, the glad that there's salvation. Ushers, y'all come, eh? The grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did spend on Calvary. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdens, hope, and liberty at Calvary. Bill, lead us in prayer, please, sir. Oh, yeah. Well, that's an
Thank you, David. Thank you so much. We have a video here about a movie that's going to be coming You might out. wonder why any Christian and their family should see a movie UFOs and aliens. When Gary Bates and his team at Creation Ministry International invited me to appear in their documentary, Alien Intrusion, Unmasking Deception, I knew this would be a special resource for the church at large. See, science fiction with its concepts of life evolving on other worlds is thoroughly dealt with. But there's a deeper and more disturbing aspect to this phenomenon that I believe every Christian and pastor needs to be aware of. You see, in this film, you'll hear the testimonies of people who were led to believe that they had firsthand encounters with alien beings. But the most powerful revelation is to hear how they were set free from this deception, this bondage by the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not just a small group of people the experiences are more common than you think. Uh, my staff was given a special screening of this movie, and they also believed, like me, that this movie is one of the most powerful and convincing gospel presentations ever seen in Christian films. And because it uses the hugely popular cultural phenomenon of UFOs, it represents an incredible outreach opportunity for believers and the wider church to lead people to Christ. So I want to encourage everyone hearing this message to attend the nationwide theatrical release of Alien Intrusion, Unmasking a Deception, on January 11, 2018. So go to the website on your screen now, find a cinema near you, and pre-book tickets for your family and friends. All right. You might wonder, we actually have one more video. Um, the uh, Rob, we've got the... Science fiction film. Um, I can tell you the truth is out there, but it's a lot stranger than any science fiction. It's claimed that over 20 million Americans have seen a UFO. The Roper poll concluded that up to 4 million Americans had been abducted by aliens. I've been involved in the development of space vehicles for exploration for over 60 years. You know, there are massive problems with the idea that advanced aliens simply warp themselves around the galaxy. The Starship Enterprise travels at multiple factors of light speed. It is estimated that there are 100,000 dust particles per cubic kilometer of space, traveling at about one-third the speed of light. Even a grain as light as a snowflake would be like a pinpoint explosion of four tons of TNT. These alleged aliens coming to us from distant star systems are nothing of the sort. Rather, they are deceptive entities emanating from another dimension. These experts tell us that the very laws of physics must be violated if these aliens are to get here from distant star systems. But I'm telling you that I've now met hundreds of people who've seen things and even claim encounters with beings and they've got no explanation about their experiences. I remember them coming into our bedroom. My daughter's crib was at the foot of the bed. And I watched two of them come over and pick her out of her bed. She was so scared. You know, I believe something actually is happening to them. Because it's one thing to just deny. It's another thing to say, 
we really understand what you're saying, and we believe you had an experience. But here's God's take. Explain why I'm showing videos. Van, I'm pretty loud, so uh, I want to share why I'm showing videos of UFO and aliens here. Uh, but um, you'll, uh, Van, you'll want to turn me down because once I raise my voice, it'll blast everybody's ears out. But <coughs> what what this is is has anybody here read the book Alien in Tr- an Invasion? It came out in 2010. Anyway, uh, <laughs> no one raised their hand. What, what it is, I'm sure you've heard of UFOs, aliens, people uh, seeing flying objects, people having unusual experiences. Roswell from 50 years ago uh, in Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, but what this is, is the, this is sponsored, this book and movie, by the Creation Museum th- up the road there in... Um, uh, north, um, north Kentucky, there, northern Kentucky, where the Creation Museum. They also own the Ark, right up the in Williamstown there. But they have um, they published a book about it, and it's really fascinating because basically what it, the book says, and I'll tell you uh, what it's about. The uh, all these people that are having these unusual experiences with. UFOs and aliens, instead of just denying them and saying, you know what, you're hallucinating, you're crazy, you've lost it, you're trying to become fa- uh, famous, you want, um, uh, you want attention, whatever, they make proof uh, from a scientific standpoint that just like the, um, the second video shared that a, a um, flying object through uh, outer space at that speed, it, just, it couldn't make it physically. It, it breaks the laws of physics. What it, the solution is, is what they're saying, it's demonic, they're demons. They're acknowledging it's true, but if you look at the UFO movement and the alien movement, it points to um, a, uh, a belief of, hey, it's science, you have to, you know, science is, uh, the, I guess, the fact, what they'll try to say, and also it's new age thinking, you know, life on other planets, and the, the point is saying this is something very demonic. Anyway, Thursday is January 11th. Sherry, I find a babysitter. They're actually showing the movie this Thursday. It's one. Of, this is a Christian movie, and it's only going to be showed at you know like seven, eight hundred theaters throughout throughout the United States. And uh, Johnny Hunt, our pastor there at uh, First Baptist Woodstock, Georgia, he has watched it, endorsed it. So this is a great. It's also gives it gives you a rebuttal to uh, people who believe in UFOs and aliens. As well as it presents the gospel saying this is most likely, yeah, they saw something. It was probably demonic, something that was occurring. You know, remember, Satan is the great deceiver, and he wants to deceive people any possible way. And if he has to use UFOs to do it, he certainly will create something called a UFO to deceive people and basically pull them away from Jesus Christ. The movie is actually showing at um, Fayette Mall Theater as well as the one there at uh, the tavern there in Nicholasville. So it's exciting. I'm glad it's coming here to Lexington. I think it only has one showing on Thursday. It's only one night only. And I think only one time at the theater. So it's very limited. That's how a lot of Christians, they always do it on like a Thursday night. That's when the Christian movies get to be played, I guess. But, but that is, if you have nothing going on Thursday, you can go to the movies and watch The Alien Intrusion. It basically is a, uh, it's an outstanding movie, I think, that 
certainly is a, a worth worth considering if you're one of those sci sci-fi people or if you're into aliens or UFOs, something like that. All right, open your Bibles, Book of Luke. We're going. We are beginning a probably an eight-month sermon series here. Maybe not quite eight months, six, seven months. We're going to be going through the Book of Luke. The Book of Luke. I'm about to give you some background information. All right, go ahead and turn to Luke one one. I'm going to tell you about the beginning of it. Then we're going to skip a, a chapter and a half and get to Luke chapter two because I've already preached on back in Christmas on some of this stuff. But I'll uh, fill you in on it. We'll review it real quickly on that. The book of Luke is my favorite book of the Bible. And I want to tell you about the book of Luke. I'm going to give you some background here. There's uh, really in the, in the New Testament, you need to know the author of Luke and the author of Paul. Paul wrote the most of the New Testament. 27 books in the New Testament. He wrote 13 of those letters. He wrote 31.5% of the New Testament. And that's verses and words. You know, in, in, um, you know, taking his hold, the 27 books. So Paul is, he holds the title as the most popular New Testament author. Number two is Luke. Luke wrote two books of the New Testament. He wrote Luke, and then the follow-up to that is the book of Acts. He wrote 27.5% of the New Testament. So you take Luke and Paul together, that's 59% of the New Testament comes from these two authors. Luke and Paul traveled together. We know that from Colossians um, Colossians 4.14 and 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul mentions Luke and, and uh, those two letters of his that they were together on their, some of their missionary journeys. And it also mentions that Luke is a physician. Luke is a doctor. He is uh, very unique in a sense because he's a Gentile. He's not Jewish, and he's writing to a Gentile audience. He's uh, from a Greek background. So what we see is most of, most of the folks in the New Testament have the, the Jew, it presents it from a Jewish standpoint, but not Luke in Acts. So interesting, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke here, it's actually the longest book in the, in the New Testament. Of all, in all the New Testament, 27 books, it's actually the longest, meaning it has the most words. And then second is the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. So if you're going to be a student of the Bible, you really need to know the writings of Luke. And not only that, what's interesting about the book, we, we, we have something in the Gospels called the Synoptic Gospels. What that means is the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Many of their stories are the same, and they pull from the same source. We don't know what that source is. Bible theologians call it the Q. And it's just an unknown unknown source. And, uh, but what's interesting about uh, Matthew and Mark go together pretty closely. But when you get to Luke, 60% of the material in the Gospel of Luke is actually unique to Luke and all the other parts of the New Testament. So you see a picture in the Scriptures in the Gospel of Luke that's very unique from the other ones. And not only that, the goal of the book of Luke is to present the Gospel to a Gentile, meaning us. It's written for folks like the Greeks and the non-Jewish folks through that. And also one of the things um, about this book here is it was written about 25 to 30 years after, after Jesus ascended into heaven. So the, it, the, it's dated around 58 or 60 A.D. It's an important date because that's before the destruction of Jerusalem, which fell there 
in A.D. 70. So about a decade or 12 years, dozen years, the go- this gospel here is written. The central th- themes of the book of Luke is will you read this entire, over the next six, seven months, I want you to make a commitment on Sunday night to go through this. We'll go, um, go through this entire book, except for the first chapter and a half. And the central themes you're going to see here is the gospel goes out to Gentiles. It's written to a different type of audience than Matthew and Luke. And also the emphasis on prayer. Nineteen times do we see Jesus praying. He actually prays more in the, in, ha, and breaks away and spends more time in prayer in the Gospel of Luke than in any other, uh, any other Gospel account. So that is the picture we see here, the longest book of the Bible. It's de- this uh, book here is dedicated to a man named Theophilus. Now you say, who's, who's Theophilus? We know nothing about this guy. Nothing. All, the book of Luke and Acts are dedicated to him. All we know is that um, he is apparently... The name gives that he was a Greek gentleman. He wasn't a Jew, and he probably knew Luke. That's it. And he re, he was the recipient of this book with that. And uh, Luke, one of the neat things about him is, uh, the neat thing about the book of Luke is he gives attention to detail. Because he's a physician, and he has a, that type of background, he doesn't just paint with a broad brush. He zeroes in, and it's very, uh, very specific. So you want to turn here, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. We're going to um, see here... Um, uh, the beginning of this book, then we're going to, I'll quickly give a, su- a summary of chapter 1, which su- a summary of chapter 1 is the birth of John the Baptist linked with the birth of Jesus. We're going to pick up here on the boyhood of Jesus. Verse 1, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Now, I want to I share what happened. So, what this means here is there's some other books, there's some other letters, there are other Gospels out there. But Luke felt, hey, the, just because someone else wrote about Jesus and wanted to report about his life, doesn't mean you can or he can. So he wants to contribute to that about the events. Verse 2, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence. So he and he's going to do this. He felt led by the Holy Spirit. And I also remember he travels with Paul and Paul's writing letters. So if Paul's going to write, Paul's probably encouraging him, says Luke, you need to write. Paul's writing to churches to teach the churches in those cities, especially cities that he went, had gone to, and he encouraged them, and he, he wrote more on doctrine. Here's the Bible doctrine, what you need to believe as, as Christians in the first century. Luke comes right, here's the story of Christianity. Here's Jesus from before he was born to him ascending into heaven and everything that happened in between, the life of Jesus Christ. So he's writing in a sense this, it's a biography of Jesus' life. If you're a biography reader, you're going to like the Gospel of Luke. So it says here, he says, Since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, again, that's his title, most honorable, so that meant he possibly could have been a government official. He could have been someone who uh, was well-respected. We don't know. 
so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So apparently what happened is Theophilus had been instructed. That meant he had been discipled. Probably Luke, maybe Paul, had discipled this man, Theophilus, and they wrote this book to him. And, you know, he, he wrote this probably having no idea this is going to be preached and taught in churches millions of millions of times over as canon scripture. But that's certainly in the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens here at the Gospel of Luke. So the purpose of this book is to go to Theophilus to teach him and to instruct him about what Luke and probably Paul have already said. All right, the first chapter in Luke, I'm going to summarize this here. Gabriel shows up with John. This is chapter 1. We're not going to read this. I preached on this at the beginning of December. Uh, Gabriel shows up to Zechariah, to Elizabeth. They're going to have a baby. They're up on age. Uh, Zechariah struggled. He went mute for a little while, but it worked out. John was born. They named him John. And, um, and then also, uh, Gabriel comes and predicts in chapter 1, comes to Mary, Joseph, so, hey, you're going to have a baby, too. So now um, Elizabeth's cousin uh, or her uh, kin, kin, kin person, who's, uh, she's rela- her relative, as the Scripture says, they're related to Mary and Elizabeth. So we see that Gabriel shows up with Elizabeth. We see a song here. Uh, Mary sings a song. We see the birth and naming of John. And we see uh, the prophecy here, chapter 2, the birth of Jesus, the birth narrative. Jesus is born there in Bethlehem. Uh, the census is taken. The shepherds show up. That's, this is all unique information. Uh, only the shepherds are recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. And then uh, three Sundays ago, or I think on Wednesday night, I preached on the uh, uh, circumcision and the first time Jesus was presented there at the temple. That's about midway through Luke chapter 2. Uh, we see Simeon and Anna. There's a very special baby dedication that certainly occurred. So that is usually Luke 1 and the first part of Luke chapter 2 you hear those sermons, you hear those teachings around Christmas, because all of that there leads up to the birth of Christ. Well, I'm not going to go word for word from that, because we just pretty much went through all this last month. Where we're going to pick up here, in verse 39, the family here, this is how they end up in Nazareth. Luke does not record them going to Egypt. Matthew's account, remember they, the wise men show up, Luke doesn't record the wise men. You know, he presents a complete, Matthew shows a very Jewish angle of Jesus's life. Luke doesn't necessarily show that. He's showing, because the, the wise men with Herod, all that has to do with Judaism, about a king has been born. Here, we're presenting Jesus to the angels that are coming to worship him. They're, they're saying, wow, the child has been born. They're excited, and they give praise to him, So shepherds out in the fields come down and certainly see uh, that he goes to the temple and they realize this child is very special. Verse 39, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. So now they're going back to Galilee. This is where they're making their home. To their own town of Nazareth, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom and God's grace was on him. We know extremely little about Jesus' boyhood. What we're about to read here in this next section is one of the rare glimpses of Jesus Christ as a young young child. And the reason 
And the reason why I believe we don't know much, and I think this is an important part, many people might say, well, why do we see, okay, we see Jesus' birth, and we see Jesus' ministry, when he's 30, he, he, he begins his ministry, we're going to see in, in chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, we'll see that next Sunday, and we see that's when he starts his three-year ministry, and ultimately he's going to die. So you say, well, Daniel, why does not, why don't we see Jesus as a teenager? Why don't we see him as a 21-year-old? All we're going to see is this young guy's at age 12 here. And I believe God did this on purpose. This wasn't on accident. And the reason I believe this, and other folks believe it too, is because the Holy Spirit and the Lord, He doesn't want us to, to get distracted with unimportant events in Jesus' life. It was important that Jesus was born of a virgin. It was important that the wise men and the shepherds came and worshipped and praised this child. It was important and how the preservation occurred and Mary remained a virgin. Joseph didn't divorce his wife who he was engaged to. Then we see this one little section here, age 12 at the temple, and then we don't see Jesus again until he's 30. And I think the reason why is the purpose of the gospel is to really highlight what happened at age 30. The The Jesus we need to be focusing on is not Jesus at age 12. It's Jesus at age 30 when he begins his ministry pointing people to a cross. There should be no distractions. The Holy Spirit, and we don't see any, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, nothing about a boyhood Jesus, except this one little section we're about to see here we're going to read. Because there shouldn't be any distractions. The birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Now, obviously, the resurrection, the crucifixion, all, certainly all that, as well as his teachings there, you know, obviously leading up to that, and that's what got him crucified. So uh, the gospel's pointing us to what's most important. But it's interesting, what we're about to read here in verse 41 uh, through the end of the chapter is the one and only glimpse in the scriptures of Jesus as a child. And it's important, this is important for parroting. This is, you ever go to a parroting seminar, people teach on this all the time. They're all constantly talking about it. So we're going to read here in this section. Uh, actually, before I read, I want to tell you what's about to happen. I want to give you some background on Jewish festivals. You need to know this because that you say, why? Okay, we're in Nazareth. Jesus is being raised here, and he's going to the temple. He's going to, uh, to Jerusalem there. Three times a year, if you lived in Israel, and you were a, 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 a Jewish family, and you wanted to uh, raise your child and your family in the eyes of the Lord and obey what the Scripture said, you had to go make three pilgrimage, pilgrimages to Jerusalem a year. It was required three times in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16. Number one was Passover. It was the most important pilgrimage. And this is what, what we're going to see right here. Passover is the time that Jewish folks, it's also the time Jesus was crucified. And that was, uh, that was there. It began uh, because, remember, the death angel passed over there in the Exodus of all the Jewish people because they had blood on their door and their uh, doorposts. And all the firstborn sons in Egypt died. The death angel, the angel of the Lord, passed over, that's where it comes from, the Hebrew children, the Jewish folks, Jewish boys, yet all the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's son, was killed by the sword. The Passover event is actually what got 
the, uh, the Hebrews under slavery released. At that point, Pharaoh said, the people can go. Just get them out of here. I'm tired of seeing them. That's what released them. So this is something, an observance. It's a milestone in Jewish history. It's important. And God tells his people, you need to remember the Passover. Don't forget the reason you aren't in slavery anymore. Because without God releasing them and having the death angel come pass over, they would still, he's saying, you'd still be in slavery today. And that's important for us as Christians because without Jesus Christ setting us free of sin, what would we be in? We would still be in slavery to sin. We're under the bondage and yoke of sin, yet because of Jesus, He's essentially our Passover. He's redeemed us. Just as the Jewish people got released from Egypt because of the, um, of, uh, of the Passover and that. That's what released them. That was the most important festival. So we're going to see here why we're, the reason I'm telling you this is because this is what brought this holy family to Jerusalem. Second um, pilgrimage that Jewish folks had to make, it was required, it was called the Festival of Weeks. We as Christians know it, weeks, that's W-E-E-K-S, weeks. So it's, it's seven weeks, which would be 49 days, plus one. So it's Pentecost as Christians. That's what it's known as. What this is, this is when the first harvest would come in. And that's uh, 50 days after um, Easter, after Passover. So it's, um, uh, 50, it's 49 plus 1 is how they get that, 7 weeks plus 1 day. And the Jewish folks, it's usually held around late, uh, late May or so, or June, and that's when the first harvest would come in. And they're, they're to remember that the first fruits, the first harvest, this is a festival to celebrate the blessings of the Lord, the, the Pentecost. And Pentecost was very important because it was a time at the Pentecost that the Holy Spirit showed up in Acts chapter 2. And that there, the, all these people from uh, all the different uh, uh, backgrounds were there in Jerusalem, and that's when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2. And what made that a perfect situation is it brought all these different people groups into Jerusalem, so they start hearing the gospel preached and taught in their own native language. That's why in Acts chapter 2, you see the speaking in tongues. This was a miracle that occurred so that people in their native language could learn and hear about Jesus. And God allowed them, forced them to come into Jerusalem through the festival of weeks. Now, the next festival is typically held in the, um, around the fall in September or October. Jewish people also had to go to Jerusalem for what is known as the Festival of Tabernacles, also known as the Festival of Shelters or of Booths. Also, if you read all any of those phrases in your Bible, that's where um, uh, you know that's what it's, it's talking about. What this festival is about is during the Festival of the Tabernacles, and Jesus observed the Festival of Tabernacles in John chapter seven. He went there and said, "I'm the light of the world." And what happened at this um, festival, it, Jesus went into Jerusalem, had to participate in it. In John chapter 7, he went and preached there at the temple because everybody was there. But during the time that the Israelites were in the desert there in um, Mount Sinai area, what we studied this past Wednesday night, wandering around out in the desert, try, wait, waiting there 40 years with Moses to get into the promised land, God put them in little tabern little booths, little shelters, 
It was miniature homes. They had to stay. God provided for them their little homes they lived in, preparing to go into the promised land. He provided their manna. They followed the cloud. I mean, God was in the desert with these people, the Israelites, and giving them a tabernacle or a home. And, and they followed the Lord's leadership, and they typically celebrated that. What's interesting about the festival of the tabernacle, I'm going to give you some bonus information here. John 1.14, you know, we always think, when was Jesus born? Was he born on December 25th? Most likely not. December 25th was um, uh, probably a time that Jesus was not born, and the reason why is because that date actually came from Constantine, this is why, have you ever heard somebody say Christmas is secular, it's a secular holiday? Well, where they get that from is there is, I think, is the goddess of light. The, the December 25th, back in Roman mythology, the goddess of light, I can't remember the, per, the, that, the Greek god's name, uh, that, their date was December 25th. So Constantine, this is you know, uh, about three, 400 uh, A.D. decided, he, he became a Christian, and he decided, okay, we need to give a date for Jesus' birth. So we already have this Greek holiday here, so we'll just make it Jesus' holiday. So that's where we uh, get, because we do not know, the Bible does not say when Jesus is born. But in John 1.14, um, it says here, I want to read this, there's a possibility Jesus could have been born during the time, now this is speculation, but a lot of Bible theologians and scholars believe that he, Jesus could have been born during the festival of tabernacles. That would have been in Dece or, um, September or October when Jesus Christ possibly was born. Here's also why we don't believe Jesus was born in December 25th. That's winter in Israel. Shepherds would not be out on the hillside in Bethlehem with their sheep. That just, historically, that would not have occurred. And that, I mean, I guess technically, if you pick a, it was a one out of 365 day chance you could pick a calendar day, but that's most likely not when Jesus was born. But there's a possibility that Jesus could have been born. In John 1, 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase there, dwelt, that's the same word that can be used for tabernacle. He made a, he made a home, a shelter, a booth. Now, you'd be, we could be reading into this, but there's possibility Jesus is coming in and making his home, his booth, his shelter among us during this festival. What was interesting, the festival of tabernacles was um, the Jewish people would go into Jerusalem for one week. It was from a Sunday or a Sabbath to Sabbath or Saturday to Saturday, their Sabbath day. And they lived, they recreated what it would have been like if you were a Jewish person during the time roaming around in the desert with Moses and following the Lord's leadership. So they made little homes they lived in for a, for a month. And they dwelt in those homes. So when we see here, Jesus came and he dwelt among us, that possibly 
could have meant, hey, he's making his tabernacle, he's making his booth, he's making his shelter, and there, there could be some connection there to the, uh, the festival of tabernacles. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. But what we do most likely know is just based on um, Constantine just picked December 25th and shepherds would not be in the field uh, during the winter watching their sheep. It would have been too cold, especially in the middle of the night. So we don't know when Jesus was born. He could have been born in September, October. I was born in October, so maybe he was born on October 10th. We don't know, but th- that's... Um, but So what, what we see here is there's three Jewish festivals that brought Jewish families into Jerusalem. Turn back to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read here what's going on. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. So you got the whole background leading up here. That's leading into Luke. Now look what God's Word says. This is the only place we see Jesus' boyhood. Verse 41, every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. That was required by Scripture. That shows Mary and Joseph are good, godly parents. And what's interesting about that, uh, we see, we know this, he's 12 years old. We see mention of Joseph here. And um, so Joseph is still alive. When he's 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. Now, 12 years old is an interesting age. Have you ever heard the age of accountability? I think I spoke on it a few uh, Wednesday nights ago. A lot of people, if you go in some mainline denominations, at, at age 12, everybody gets saved. And they get that from that Bible verse. Jesus here is going at age 12 with his family. They would make a family pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they would um, learn, uh, they'd make their sacrifice. They'd learn the ways of the Lord there at their Passover. They'd bring their, their sacrifice that they certainly owed. Uh, the Bible doesn't say at age 12 people get saved. What's also interesting at age 12, why this is important, is when you're a 13-year-old, I remember my days at Stanford, I had to, in one of my religion classes, I had to go to the Jewish temple. They required it, the Jewish synagogue. I guess temple's only in, in Jerusalem. Went to the Jewish synagogue, and I had to attend a bar mitzvah. A bar mitzvah. It's first only one and only time I've ever been in a Jewish synagogue. Anybody else here ever been to a bar mitzvah? Good. More, more people have, I guess, uh, been there than uh, are interested, read about UFOs. So uh, bar mitzvah is for when a, a boy, a Jewish boy, turns 13 years old. And what that is, is that is he has to memorize a bunch of scripture. He has to stand up and quote it. It's a big celebration. It, it's a passage into adulthood. A 13-year-old... Jewish boy is considered an adult at age 13. So this is important that he's age 12. At this point, Jesus is still a child. He's not an adult yet. He hasn't had his bar mitzvah. So this is a boyhood Jesus with that. And that was my my one bar mitzvah I went to. It was quite a celebration. So uh, it's a big deal for, I mean, that's really, that is a massive event for a 13-year-old child. So he's 12 years old. This would have been the last year Jesus would have gone to a temple as a boy because next year he would be considered an adult. Verse 43, after those days were over, so we're at the temple at this point, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. He He didn't go home. They got lost. Have you ever lost a child or lost someone? I mean, this is Jesus, lost Jesus right here. Assuming he was 
in the traveling party, they went on a day's journey. So that, that apparently didn't count very well. They keep on going. Mary and Joseph, I mean, you're just, the, the, you would travel. It's not just your little family of faithful five or six. You've got the whole caravan of people. I mean, there's probably 50 people in the Mary and Joseph caravan family, and they're, they're going back, they're going up north to Nazareth, up to Galilee. You know, they're, they're probably traveling 20, 25 miles a day. So they d- get a day's walk along, and they, they don't see him. So uh, something happened to it. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. So they realized, hey, we forgot Jesus. Now what's interesting about this, I don't believe, now understand, there's a caravan of probably 50, 75 folks. Probably they all, that, those 50, 75, they just continued on and kept on going. Mom and dad and maybe whatever brother or sisters Jesus had, they think, we're missing a family member. We got to go back. So they go back to Jerusalem. And, you know, you can just imagine, it, we, don't, we don't know the emotions of Mary and Joseph at that point, but if you lose a child, but knowing that Jesus wasn't any child also, you have to remember, they were thinking, you know, this child was born of a virgin. He, we had a miraculous events, dreams that occurred. We had wise men show up. We had the shepherds come out of nowhere. We had to go escape to Egypt because of this child. We lost the Messiah. I mean, that's literally what has happened here. I mean, if all children ever get lost, Jesus is lost from his parents. Twelve years old, Mary and Jesus, Mary and Joseph are probably thinking, God, how are we going to explain this one to you? The promised child of Israel that you've given, the Messiah, is gone. So they had to go back and look for him. I mean, there's probably panic going on for these two parents. I mean, the, the Messiah is missing. So they go back to Jerusalem. So understand, it takes this is a day's journey up to wherever we realize he's missing. Another day's journey back. By this point, it's two full days just getting back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a pretty big city. It's the capital city. So where do we start looking for him? So they get back to Jerusalem, and they're now looking for him. After three days, so that meant they spent a day looking for the young man. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. Of course, Jesus is at church. They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. What we see here, we see a child, a boyhood Jesus, who is becoming a a disciple. He's learning the scriptures. He's asking questions. He's inquisitive. He's not playing video games. He's not wasting time. He's in God's house where he needs to be, and he's learning what he should be doing. Verse 47, And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. Meaning Jesus is smarter than all the, all the rabbis there. He's the smartest guy in the room. They're probably thinking, where did this guy come from? He knows the Bible better than we did, and he's not even gone through his bar mitzvah yet. So he's not even a certified adult, and he's smarter than, than all the other uh, the Jewish religious leaders. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. They couldn't believe this. Here is their child. They find the boy at the temple, and he's teaching the teachers. He's smarter than everyone. 
And his mother said to him, you know, his mother comes up. Mary goes up to Jesus, and look what she says. Son, and remember, Jesus never sinned in his entire life. Never in his life has he sinned. Why have you treated us like this? What's she say? Like, you had to know. It's been three days. What on earth is going on? I'm just glad you're alive. Three days you've been missing. Why have you treated us like this? Look at his answer. Or look what he says. Your father and I, that's Joseph. He's obviously mad. So your father and I, not just dad. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Son, you've been lost for three days. Like we know who you are. You're not, you're a special boy. You really are. And Jesus says in verse 49, why were you searching for me? Well, for my son. He asked them, didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? And if you look in your Bible, the word father's house, the word father is capitalized. That's not a reference to Joseph. That's a reference to God. Jesus was saying to his mother, this is the principle we see here, Mom, Dad, I love you. You're my parents. But there's something and there's someone I have more allegiance to than you. He's learning his father, God. He's at the temple. This, Guys, this temple he's at age 12 is the same one he's going to get crucified at. It's the one he's going to be teaching at. It's the one at the Festival of Tabernacles. He shows up in Mark or in uh, John chapter 7, verse 31, says, I'm the lie of the world. So we see Jesus is make, giving us a glimpse here that he has more allegiance, even as a 12-year-old boy, to his heavenly father than he does to his earthly parents. This is why uh, it's important to train you and teach your children the ways of the Lord. Your children, even at age 12, they can have more devotion to God than to you. Now, they might not do that, but Jesus did. He had a, it was a priority for him to be in God's house. Parents today should have their children at church every time the doors are open. It's great to get an education. It's wonderful to go to school, but you can go to school and you can learn everything in the world and not learn the most important thing, and that's Jesus Christ. How sad is it to to be successful, get a wonderful education, and go to hell. And have your parents not teach you. Mary and Joseph brought their child to church at the, at the Passover. Jesus loved it so much, he stayed. He said, this is my home, this is where I need to be. I ha he had more allegiance to his father at a young age. And this is also, we see why children can get saved. You know, we don't know at age 12 of a if, if every child has reached the age of accountability, most you know, they have to understand what sin is. But even as a child, age 12, 10, 11, a child can give their life to Jesus. They can become a young disciple. They can step into the eternity and have a relationship with him. Verse 50 here says, but they did not understand what he said to them. You know what they thought? They thought, Jesus, you've caused us a lot of problems here. You, this is now a three-day delay already. We're still in Jerusalem, and i got to get back to work. And you're telling me you've got to be in my father's house. 
I mean, they couldn't get on to him because the boy was at church, and he didn't leave church. He just stayed on and on and on. You can't get, I mean, the, the child just wanted to go to church, and he's teaching the people at church. He knows the Bible better than they did. Verse 51, when he went down with them and came to Nazareth, so he's go, they're going back to Nazareth, going down, it says they go down because uh, Jerusalem is an elevated city, so you, you leave Jerusalem, you're going down everywhere. Look at this. He was obedient to them. Jesus obeyed his parents. That's the that's fourth commandment. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Je- so Mary's you what 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 marveled Mary was her son you know, a a rabbi, a chief priest, the teachers of the law, these were very respected clergymen. These were your PhDs of the day. These are the people that have been in church, and they knew their Hebrew Bible. They were the ones leading the service there at the Passover. They taught all the Jewish people. They make the sacrifice. And Jesus is teaching them. He knows more about the Bible and the Scriptures than they did. And we see as a child, even as a 12-year-old, he's learning his Scriptures. I want you to know, our church... Broadway Baptist, the most important thing we can do is teach young people the Bible. Jesus went to church, and he learned his Bible. We see that from him. He's learning and asking questions. And listen, the thing about asking questions, there was no, they, he, he, we shouldn't discourage questions in church. It was good. Jesus here asking them questions. There's a, people who ask questions have an eagerness and an earnestness. They want to learn. They want to know. You know, if you have an honest question, ask it. Mary treasured these things in her heart. She's realizing my son's different. And then Jesus increased. Look how what happened here. As a young child, this is the last thing we know about Jesus Christ as a child before he starts his ministry with John the Baptist in chapter 3. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, that means he grew, and in favor with God and with people. Don't miss these words here. Jesus was wise. That means he learned his Bible. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is something God gives you. Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon was the wisest man ever to live. Jesus also was a wise person. Wise people have favor and grow close to the Lord. Anybody can gain knowledge. But Jesus here, he wanted to be wise. He wanted to know the scriptures. He wanted to see the big picture of what God was doing in his life. He grew in stature. Most likely, Jesus was pretty tall. And not only that, he grew in favor with God and with people, meaning Jesus also had, not only did he have a relationship with God, he grew in favor with God, he also, he was a people person. He wasn't one of these guys that was an introvert. He wasn't somebody who was isolated and from his books all the time. He's one of the guys you go talk to. He'd talk about football, he'd talk about basketball. Where you, I mean, he was a, he had people skills. He wasn't a nerdy guy that just locked himself away. So we see a picture of a young boy, Jesus, who's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have people skills, I'm going to have a strong relationship with the Lord, and knowing that, I'm going to grow in wisdom. We want to be teaching our uh, next generation, and your children, your grandchildren, they need to become wise. And the way to become wise, that's something God gives you. That's to grow in the knowledge of the Scriptures. What we see here is our first sermon here on the book of Luke. We see a picture of a young boy who, to him, it's more important, and it is more important for him, to be in the Father's house, in the presence of his God, 
teaching the, the religious leaders there at the temple in Jerusalem than to be in the presence of his parents. He had an d- absolute hunger and a desire for this book right here. And listen, here's what we're going to conclude on. If Jesus had that hunger at age 12 for the scriptures, if he wanted to be in church at age 12, surely you as an adult should be the same. God, I thank you for tonight. I pray we see here from the scriptures about you, about you as a boy, boyhood Jesus. We pray we have this passion for the word of God and for being in church. Lord, I pray also that we grow in knowledge. Lord, in, in knowledge of you, Lord, I pray we grow in the knowledge of wisdom. We pray we also grow in relationship with people. Lord, you're in the people business. You became a person to ultimately die for us. And I thank you for not giving us things in the scriptures that aren't pertinent to us today. Lord, we see your birth, we see you at 12, and we see you at 30 and 33 dying on a cross, ultimately be resurrected. And that's what's important. Lord, I pray we as parents and grandparents, we instruct our families in your ways. We teach wisdom and bring our children and grandchildren to church. Lord, just we give you this invitation. We pray this next year, this upcoming year, as we go through this incredible gospel here of Luke. Lord, it speaks to us. We pray we're faithful in reading it. And Lord, we pray for a blessing that's going to come from it. In Jesus' name we pray this evening. Amen. We're going to have our invitation. David Dell is going to lead us in our song. I'll invite everybody to stand as usual. You can make a decision. You can follow Christ. You can make this your church home. I'll be standing out front waiting for you to respond. Let's stand together and sing. Number 435, Just As I Am. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to everybody this Wednesday you know we have uh, we're starting uh, our options I guess on Wednesday night 6 30 so you, uh, we'll have uh, something for everyone truly for that but I'll still be here we are going through the Ten Commandments and we are uh, on the commandment of not making the second commandment is no idol so we'll be studying that there in Exodus chapter 20 David okay let's sing family of God on our way out I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. For I'm part of the family, the family.